Welcome to another action-packed episode of Everything Went Black. Welcome my guest, Mike Gitter, A&R extraordinaire, and more recently, published author. That's right, Mike has a book out, and we're going to talk about it on this episode, as well as a bunch of other cool stuff. His book, Triple X Fanzine, 1983 to 1988, is out. It's a collection of his old fanzine that documents the hardcore scene between 1983 and 1988 as seen through the eyes of an active participant in the Boston hardcore scene. Before we get started, I just want to uh, take care of a little business first. Check out the Patreon if you want to support the podcast. For as little as $1 a month, you can make a difference. So, um, yeah, I'd like to thank everyone who's joined the uh, numbers are growing, and in the next week or so, I'll be sending out links for some more free stuff and uh, just keep the ball rolling with that. As always, this episode is brought to you with the help of Onnit. If you want to check out um, Onnit's links, head over to the website, Everything Went Black Media. You'll see some, uh, some banners, ones for foods and ones for workout equipment. And um, if you see me promoting this stuff, it means that I 100% back all of this stuff that they're selling. I use it regularly. Big user of the supplements. I own a bunch of Onnit uh, exercise equipment. And uh, there you go. On to the episode. So congratulations on your new book, Triple um, X Fanzine. And uh, before we get Thank into you. this too deeply, can you just describe what this book actually is? Okay, well, so from 1983 to 1988, I published 20 issues of a fanzine called Triple X. And as much as I was inspired by the music that was happening, sort of like jumping on its tail end of, of the first generation and sort of the beginning of the second generation of hardcore, and you know, living in Boston where we had like where we had an amazing scene where we had like several like amazing bands and we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. There was also a lot of great zines going around and on a national level, you had flip side and maximum rock and roll. And we were also getting things like early touch and go WDC period, you know, but on a, on a local level, we had some pretty substantial zines as well. Force exposure was a great, was a great one. You know, even though it could be snark, it could be like, a bit snarky in, in its in its reviews and sort of its um, you know how it was sort of looking looking occasionally down on certain bands like say you know big big ups to SSD big down to the freeze right you know and 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 they had it was very opinionated and, but it had that sort of secret handshake to a scene that I was I was sort of coming into and it was sort of blowing my mind at the time because it spoke very directly to me. Also, there was a pictorial content to it that was sort of pretty groundbreaking in its own. Well, I mean, for sure, the pictures were great. You know, it was really point of impact stuff. And, you know, having seen things like Glenn Friedman's My Rule Zine um, and some of like the great Ed Culver, you know, some of the great Ed Culver pictures in, um, in Flipside, you know, I was, I was just inspired to do a zine that sort of encompassed, you know, encompassed all of this um, that was, that was pictorial. You know, it was pictorially sort of enticing. Um, they also bled pretty well because um, you know, I was, at the time I was I wasn't sort of I, I probably wasn't talented enough 
or, or adept enough to actually be in a band. Everyone in the hardcore scene had um, a job to do. You know, that was like, the, that was like one of the great, the great things about stepping in is like the, the price of admission was, okay, you get a gig. You're in a band, you're taking pictures, you're putting on shows, you're putting out a scene. Well, okay, I was, I, was, I was really good in English class. And I was also really, when I, when I went to Stop and Shop to go uh, food traveling with my mom, it would immediately be like beeline, you know, beeline to the magazine rack. Mm-hmm. And there's cream and there's trouser press. And I was just instantly sort of hooked. So, you know, so, so that kind of all went into Triple um, X, which started in 19, which actually published its first issue the second week of, second week of June, 1983. I'd also done a short lived zine uh, called Suburban Mucus which put out three issues, probably a total print run of about 150 copies. And we did that. I did that, um, in 1982 and, and it's actually been reprinted as sort of a, a bonus, uh, as a sort of value add. If you order the triple X book through, um, bridge nine, okay. but, but you know, it, it's great. Cause that, that's really a portrait of like a kid coming off the sidelines going, I can do this. I can be part of this, you know, punk rock or hardcore, or even even rock and roll, which I, which which I still say is a very kind of like is really a, kind of a very DIY affair. No matter how you slice it, you know you can be a participant and you can make a difference. And which to me was the lesson of all of this. And I think that that's sort of a an ethic that I still sort of sort I still carry with me, you know, decades later. Now to give some context to this, uh, especially for the benefit of the younger listeners out there. You referred mm-hmm. to the second and first wave. Can you kind of give a little background on what that might be? Oh, sure. I, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the first wave. You know, what, what was the first wave of hardcore? Really, I, I, I think that was the. If I was sort of to lock it into a time frame, probably like nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine. Um, you know, the middle class puts out out of vogue. Black Flag puts out, you know, the Nervous Breakdown EP, you know, and, and, and kids and bands start getting inspired, picking up instruments, um, channeling frustration and aggression and ambition into, into writing, you know, some, some now very classic, very classic and very sort of like, often, oftentimes anthems that we're all, that we're all kind of like, that kind of set a lot of us into motion. That first gener- that first generation, you know, really, if, if I was to sort of sum it up, was you know the early Discord releases, you know, the early Touch and Go releases, you know, whether it be DC Youth Brigade, you know, um, you know, the Negative Approach EP, you know, just just a first, you know, Black Flag, you know, Black Flag, the Nervous Breakdown, Jealous Again into damage basically that first ex- that first explosion of, of ambition and enthusiasm that you know carved out diy america actually diy worldwide yeah and you know the the what what we've come to call you know classic first generation hardcore i think what happened around probably around late 1982 1983 was a lot of these bands had done had sort of done their trip. You started to have bands like 
Meyer Threat, who existed for 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 for, for just a, a few years, released what twenty four songs. Right. Uh, they had kind of they had kind of done their trip and signed off. The Misfits uh, kind of made, made the transition to fat, you know, to sort of like faster, more hardcore influenced stuff. They did Earth AD, and I think Glenn wanted Glenn wanted to go elsewhere. So you know by I think the middle of middle to actually the fall of 1983, you know, they 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 were calling it a day. You know, it was it was it was it was, it was just a time where people were people were starting to move on, um, be it personally or musically, from that you know from that first like that first sort of round of inspiration. What I call the second generation was a really interesting time, and and, and I didn't realize it at first as I was doing the Triple X book because initially it was sort of like a greatest hits of. My zine, because well, who who wants to who wants to read twenty issues of of like you know very naive and sort of occasionally uninformed writing with cool pictures? <laughs> yeah. Um, also, we we're like we don't we don't need a five or six hundred page book of this. We need a more you know comfortable thing. Anyway, you know what I started realizing as the book was coming together was this is documenting a period of enormous change. This this was when guys who had sort of learned to play their instruments in, in 79, 80, 81, 82, were starting to become musicians. Black Flag was slowing down, which, which became amazingly influential and, you know, informed, you know, whether it be, and and I I think, and I think also you had like kind of like Flipper happening around the same time, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, that, that went informed neurosis that went informed the Melvins, um, ultimately that trickled out to Nirvana, you know, that kind of changed the world. You also had this whole rise of different genres and subgenres within, you know, punk or hardcore, which by the way, were not, you know, which were not mutually exclusive back then. You had, you know, you had, you had the metal punk crossover, you had the youth crew, you had, um, indie rock, you had people like, you know, Rollins or Danzig or Dave Perner from Soul Asylum or, or, you know, Bob Mould or, you know, Jay Maskus really emerging from, from just being a member of whether it be Sam Hain, whether it be, you know, Black Flag, Hooster Dew, Deep Wound, um, Loud Fast Rules, which became Soul Asylum. Well, but you had people sort of becoming like artists and songwriters, you know, bands, Bands challenging themselves. You had you had the rise of like the whole SST records, you know, mentality. I don't even it wasn't a sound. It was it, it was sort of it was sort of a zeitgeist, and 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 music was you know like music was changing and challenging, and it was a really fertile time. You didn't know what you were getting occasionally. Like you had a band like The Descendants, who you know now are probably bigger than they've ever been. They went from, you know, Milo goes to college to I don't want to grow up to, you know, enjoy was getting a little bit more adventurous. And then you get the all record and you're like, you're like, there's some of the best songs on that, some of the best songs on that record, but there's some of their weirdest songs on that record as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and as they morph into all, you know, you know, even even like like I had Stefan talks Stefan um Edgerton talks about this in the book. Um, you 
they almost couldn't be trusted. You know, same with bands like Dukreutzen. Um That's a band that I was yeah, immediately it, I thought of Dukreutzen and and maybe even yeah. gov- government issue too. I mean, just how much yep. they changed. Oh, with, without without a doubt. Um, you know, another it was it was funny. Like, like I was having a conversation with somebody last night. You know, another great example of like first first generation into into that era was you know you had bands like the Flesh Eaters kind of coming coming in around 82, 83, actually probably actually early, actually earlier, but cleaning out records like a minute's prayer, a second to die, which was completely unlike, you know, what what else was it, it was not simplistic. It was more it was it was a lot more sort of ambitious and artsy. I'll I'll credit this to 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 my friend Ron Martinez, who who brought we were talking about this last night. You know, he brought up the point he was like, if you think about the flesh eaters were probably like that that pivot point to the Jesus Lizard and the Touch and Go sound. So again, you know, so, so when we when we talk about the second wave, in in a lot of ways, it's it's just as important and in some ways more resonant today, in terms of in, in, in terms of you know a lot of the you know music, be it underground or mainstream that we listen that we listen to now. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Uh, you know, I mean, there there's been a lot more variety and kind of like more um, obscure influences creeping its way as mm-hmm. different different genres like cross pollinate and and you know I'll agree yeah. with that. Now, the, even the idea of a zine is something that might actually be um, you know lost on certain members of the newer wave of listeners and fans of music. And um, right. so back back in the eighties, this was this was a hands on tactile experience as opposed to like reading a blog. So yeah. was there like a certain uh, level of commitment that was required to do that? You know, like what sort of a well, commitment to the art form did you have to have? Well, first off, I can't fault one generation for having tools and having a reach that we didn't have in the 80s uh, via the internet. But I think the main difference was you had to be a participant. It wasn't just an occasional lifestyle. It was your lifestyle. You know, you had to go to the shows. You had to go, you know, you had to find that record store in your town. You had to go get that fanzine. You had to have that conversation. You you had to sort of interact with, with others on a very, you know, personal level. And that was, you know, that was that was kind of the point of inspiration and a, a massive point of, of localized um, creativity. You know, I think one of the main differences between then and now is with everything of it, with everything available, every, every possible sound available, you, you, you lose that sense of localization. You know, you, you lose that sense of towns having a certain sound. There is in sort of, a, you know, a sort of nostalgic way, but there's no longer like a DC sound. There's no longer a Boston sound. There's no longer a, um, a Chapel Hill sound. Right. You know, there's no longer a Fullerton sound. It's all out there and available, which is, you know, in, in, so, in some ways great because you, you get some, like, incredible, you know, incredible sorts of cross-pollinization. Look, even like, you know, your own band, um, you know, or, or bands like, you know, Propagandi or, um, you know, Death Heaven, all sort of combining different elements um, and and coming up coming up with sort of basically new paradigms, bringing new ideas, you know, 
new ideas forwards, which, which I think is really good. But yeah, there, there's, there's, le- there's less of that homogenous sound of our town. You know, so I mean, that, that was, that, that's, I think that's one thing that's kind of like been lost, been lost to time. Yeah. You know, and, and again, there's, there was an intensely social element to, you know, being involved in punk, you know. I mean, that's, you know, there, there's still really dear and really important friendships um, that could have, you know, that I still, I still have to this day that could have only happened, you know, by being, being around back then. Um, yeah. And having to, having to write letters to people, you know, and having, having, you know, every, it wasn't this sort of like instantly available world. You have to write a letter, you know, occasionally you have to come and visit people. Uh, you got to, and in, in that you got to sort of see things firsthand and there was an experiential or, or, or wait till a band came through. Um, but there was a very sort of like experiential nature to it. And again, I think, I think that that, that shaped it and shaped us. Yeah. I mean, I think that was kind of the main difference, at least from my perspective between, you know, metal or hard rock and hardcore and punk music was, Mm -hmm. you know, with metal, it's like a bunch of dudes coming over from Europe, you know, there's a deli tray and like, uh, you know, a bus and, you had to pay a certain right. amount of money to go to the show, but when you went to a punk show, it was all dudes you knew from like the practice space or guys that you went to school mm-hmm. with, you know. And and even when it was a band from out of town, like a touring band, it was like the local band would open, and your your buddies would all yeah. be there. But the funny thing is, look how look how punk and hardcore informed that, and 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 that sort of independent sense that came with it. You know, informed bands informed bands whether they be kind of coming from our scene, like Corrosion of Conformity or DRI or bands that were, you know, more coming from the metal point of view, a band like, say, Hyrax. Yeah. Um, you know, or Cryptic Slaughter or, um, even, like, even going forward, even early at the gates, you know, um, some, of these, some of these bands were sort of as punk and as DIY and fighting for acceptance, you know, you know from, from both things, from really from all the factions of a, you know, of a scene that fully hadn't sort of become homogenous yet. It's funny how they've informed each other. And it's funny how, you know, that sort of inspiration, um, that came, that, that comes with, you know, that came with sort of punk rock and being a participant has kind of, you know, changed, changed how we all sort of approach music approach, being in a band approach, you know, everything in the equation basically the punks won yeah i mean even like especially I mean, thrash and death metal which i think were almost mm-hmm. extensions of like the punk hardcore attitude because uh, i remember you know when i was a kid it's like before i right. even started playing music i wanted to play you know like iron maiden i wanted to be in a band like zeppelin and sabbath and all that but i just couldn't do it and then i heard black flag and the bad brains and then Later on, I was someone told me, "Oh, you should check out Metallica and Slayer." I'm like, "Ah, that's nah, like some big hair, like tight pants, you know, shit." But when I heard it, I heard a lot of the stuff that I'd been listening to prior seeping its way into that music. And then I saw pictures of Metallica all wearing like Samhain t-shirts and Misfit shirts, and that's when I finally started to see how the punk hardcore movement is starting to inform things on a lot on a more commercial level. Well, but but don't forget the links before that. And there's there's a few of them. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because because as I like, 
I'm, I'm going to be 52 next next month. So I've I've, I've got a little bit of perspective. I've had a little bit of perspective on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there were there were bands that kind of bridged a lot of gaps. You know, seeing Saint Vitus open for Black Flag mm-hmm. um, yes. in in 1984, which was probably a kind of a confrontational a confrontational move coming from the Black Flag camp. But in some ways, such a groundbreaking move, kind of like what was was a mind-opening experience. You know, seeing seeing bands, hearing hearing what was happening in bands like Discharge. Oh yeah, you know, definitely. as 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 a who who you know, if, if you chart the course of uh, chart their their career course from you know Fight Back to the Warning EP, and we don't have to talk about the Grave New World record because that was just a. That was a, that was a jumping of the shark that didn't involve uh, it didn't involve bones on guitar, but if, if you sort of like look at there's you know as these guys learn to play, it, you know that that kind of creeps into the sound. I mean, we certainly had that in Boston with our bands. Oh yeah, SSD um, comes to mind right away, definitely. SSD, totally, totally. Yeah, totally. I, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I mean. But even 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 really, I mean, I mean, I think SSD kind of peaked on the Get It Away record, um, and and I think in a very kind of black you know black flagish way, Al you know Al Barilla always wanted to sort of keep pushing forward and keep um, challenging himself, and sometimes it worked, you know, because I, I think How We Rock's a really good record. I still think it's a hardcore record. Yeah, um, I think by the time they got to break it up. They were trying to be a band that they, they were they were trying to be a hard rock band, um, and they weren't really a great hard rock band. And I think that's one of the reasons they kind of tra- they kind of trailed off. Um, but you know, then you had like DYS, you know, who were a you know they, they were a very inviting and very inclusive and very sort of like lyrically embracing band on Brotherhood. Which, which I, I think that's why people like them. I think that they, you know, musically they were sort of they were okay. They were. I think Dave Smalley carried like a message, and it was it was one of inclusion. And but I think as they kind of evolved and grew, yeah, they they actually became an okay, like a pretty okay metal band. Um, there's some great, you know, there's there's some great music that was that sort of existed between Brotherhood and um, the self-titled metal records which sort of merged both sounds together. And I, I kind of wish they made a record at that point. Cause I think, you know, they would have been, they would have been probably regarded, you know, as much more of a musical force um, than, than, than history probably paints them as. Yeah. But you could even, you could even see bands like say, you know, like Jerry's kids yeah. who never made them, who never made the metal jump. Um, but just kind of grew, you know, just grew within, within the nation, nature of what they did and, sort of took that sort of discharge bad brains route and you know add some surf guitar and add some other you know kind of like just experience and ideas to it and, and became like like a real force as a band which of course you know which of course like what inspired bands you know like um like siege oh yeah yeah who were who who you know you you, you put on you put on the drop dead um demo and it's like, what the fuck were these guys doing? You know, um, but at the, you know, at the at the same time, this wasn't just a localized event. You know, in Japan, you have fucking Gizm 
doing, you know, like, like bending genres and going into places that like, I, I still don't even know where they were going, but let's not also forget about two really important bands that I got turned on to, um, before, you know, really before Metallica or Slayer, which were Motorhead and Venom. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. You, you couldn't tell and, and, where, especially Venom, they were like, when I first heard Venom, I thought they were a punk band. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, Al, Qu- Al Quinn from Suburban Voice gave me, you know, like either either gave me or turned me on to the um, the Die Hard seven inch, and it was like, this is this is this is heavier and harder and and more, you know more ferocious and really catchy, um, you know, like like then you know than than most than some of the stuff I was listening to at the time. Um, you know, the same like when I, when I first got my hands on um, Motorhead's Iron Fist. Yeah. Um, you know, which was which was the first Motorhead record I ever got, and I was I was had had that same kind of rush. Um, you know, so, so I, I mean, those you know those bands were really important. Also, on the fanzine level, like there's definitely there was definitely a couple of, a couple of like zines that trickled into um into some of the record stores I was going to. Uh, Bob Muldowney's Kick-Ass Monthly okay, was, was really was really important in um, in that it was one of the early and bigger um, underground metal zines. And we're, we're talking like circa you know eighty four, eighty five um, that were cover you know that were starting to cover hardcore. And granted, it was you know it was it was just like here's here you know they were reviewing things like COC's Eye for an Eye. Or the or the early DRI stuff, um, the crossover stuff, but, sort of, yeah, 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 and and and, and or, or you know stuff like the yeah crossover stuff like English Dogs and GBH, um, who sort of just like kind of by 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 popular taste just kind of ended up there, um, but they you know that kind of open opened. Things up, open things up as well, and that's that's also the era where you start getting, you know, that pure crossover kid, you know, somebody like Scott Carlson from Repulsion, you know, was probably it was probably influenced by all of it, and that went into the sound of like that influential band. Yeah, yeah. Same with the kids. Same with the guys. Same with the guys in Napalm Death. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the beauty of those guys is like, you know, like all of us, uh, all of us kids in America or, you know, in Bo- I'll just say in Boston, you know, who were, who were haunting Newberry comics every Saturday afternoon. Um, you know, those kids were like, like Lee, Lee Dorian and Mitch Harris and, you know, Shane and Barney, those guys were all paying attention. And, you know, that's why that's, that, that created the foundation to really like amazing and still kind of groundbreaking music. Um, I mean, just, you know, just to talk about Siege for a second, you know, Siege is one of these great examples of, of, of a band that like history has completely canonized. Um, and, and they've cast, they cast a much longer shadow now than they did back then. They probably played like, I don't know, 10, 12 shows. Um, and they were not accepted. You know, that was the funny thing about Siege is Siege was perennial you know for their like two or three years of existence they were still kind of an outsider band um i remember being in new i remember being in newberry comics and 
I don't know if it was, I don't know if um, John Anassis from DYS was, you know, was working there at the time or, but I remember hearing a conversation about like how, you know, people were sort of relegating siege to this, like SSD meets DYS, um, you know, kind of a copycat, like a younger copycat band. And they weren't, they were, they were on something completely innocent and sure, they were totally influenced by those bands, but they, but they took, you know, they, 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 they took that, that sort of initial grain of inspiration and just fucking carry it, you know, like carry it as far as they could for, I think, what, like maybe 10 or 12 songs, <laughs> you, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember seeing, I remember seeing Siege in front of like 15, you know, 15 to 20 people, you know, of course, that, you know. That included people like Al Quint, um, who you know was who's been a friend of mine from the very beginning. It was was in many ways, um, you know, an inspiration, an inspiration to me. You know, through his own zine and suburban voice. Well, for, well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like Al Quint. You know, Al Quint's from the same, basically from the same area as I am, and we're both kind of like these middle class Jewish kids. You know, both sort of. And, you know, sort of blown away and addicted to this thing that was happening, you know, both in our, both in our neighborhood, because, you know, let's not forget, we grew up, we both grew up on the North shore where, you know, which is where SSD control is from, you know, in, 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 in my town, um, which was the town I grew up in, which is called Marblehead. That's where Tony from last rights is from. That's where Andy Strahan from DYS is from. That's where Jake Phelps, legendary skateboarder and uh, current editor of Thrasher is from as well. So we had all this stuff around us. And, um, you know, Al, Al did his zine, I think probably, probably about six or seven months before mine. And I sort of jumped, you know, I, I pretty much jumped on his train and was inspired by what he was doing. <laughs> and uh, we've, we've, you know, we've remained really good friends ever since. So Mike, is Al still doing Suburban Voice in some form? Yeah, Al is still doing Suburban Voice as an online blog, which is great, you know, considering it's been going since, uh, he's been doing it really since 1982. And, God, if memory, you know, it's really funny. If memory serves, um, the first the first or second issue was done on Mimeograph. <laughs> Remember Mimeo? What was Mimeograph? That's insane. <laughs> he also does an online radio show called um, Sonic Overload. Which you know is worth checking out. It's definitely a combination of you know some old, some seriously old school stuff, some you know newer punk and hardcore from from around the world. So you know he'll also focus on artists if, if something is going on in the world. Like for instance, when um, the singer from you know JJ, the singer from the Offenders, passed away, he he had a sprinkling of Offender songs. I see. Which is always a good thing. Awesome. Is that um like where where would you find that? Uh, so Sonic Overload is, is an online, it's www.sonicoverload.net. Great. Awesome. So you see what kind of information we're putting out there for people, Mike? He was actually very helpful in, in the making of the triple X book. You know, there, there were points where we we're like, Oh shit, we need a better, you know, we need a better who's to do picture or we need like this picture or that picture. And, you know, Al happens to live pretty much like a quarter of a mile from, from, the bridge nine um, office in PVD mass. So, so literally, you know, Chris would hook up with Al and, 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 and raid like 
Al's very well sort of archived files. <laughs> and Al was, Al was extremely helpful in a lot of ways, you know, by sort of helping, helping fill in, fill in some gaps. So kudos to Al, you know, we still, we're, we're, we're still in touch and I make a point whenever, whenever I go home to see the folks, I go see Al. Now is this a triple X fanzine book? Is this uh, published by bridge nine or are they just distributing it or what's the backstory? No, on that? no the, 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 um, it's, it's published by, it's published by bridge nine. Um, co-edited and the, the layout work was done by Chris Wren, the, the owner of bridge nine. What happened was about 2005, um, Chris Wren had done, had done a, um, collection of, of the schism of, of a zine called schism, which was, you know, basically a, a, a New York kind of youth crew leaning, uh, leaning zine, uh, the Alex, the Alex Brown and, uh, John Purcell, uh, put out. And, you know, he, he, he had a pretty good run with it. Um, it was, was basically inspired to do, you know, another book. And I guess he had never physically seen a copy of triple X, but he kind of heard about the legend, whatever. Um, and he contacted me. I was, and, and, and was like, Hey, would you be interested in talking about this? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and we kind of batted it back and forth. I, I sent him all 20 issues of the scene. And he went through them and he was like, holy shit, this is, this is like having, you know, a shoebox full of like vintage, vintage baseball cards. Yeah. Cause there's this, there, there is, you know, there's a lot of history and a lot of different perspectives, um, you know, of, you know, of hardcore and punk, um, that were, that, that were sort of pursuing that, pursuing the zine. Um, and you know, he was like, you want to do a book? Would you be interested in doing a book version? I was like, sure. You know? And then we kind of batted some ideas around and we were like, Oh, maybe it'll be like a greatest hits and of the zine and all that. And then he kind of ran into some trouble with the schism book. Um, there was a photo- there was a photographer whose pictures were used who sort of, um, you know, basically sent him a cease and desist. Oh, man. Um, because yeah. I guess, I guess the, I guess it was never, you know, they were never properly sort of addressed. Sure. Um, and we sort of, you know, he sort of, he sort of put the brakes on it. So, you know, life kind of took its course. Um, kind of, kind of got, you know, went and did other things, which for me included, you know, which were basically working at record companies. Um, I was at Roadrunner, you know, in those years, Century Media, uh, Razor and Tie. But, Probably around 2012, Chris and I started talking again, and I also and he was he was actually still interested in doing it, and I also got approached by Revelation to do the book as well, and you know they're, 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 and at first I was kind of like oh man it's a pain in the butt you know it's a lot of work blah blah blah, and there really came this moment where where I was sitting sitting you know at home kind of looking at thousands of pictures and flyers and stickers and some, some Z layouts and going, Oh yeah, there's a book here. And if, if I don't, and I should probably do something about this because if I don't, it's going to just all sit in shoe boxes and in bins and storage spaces. And I'm never going to be able to share, you know, 
this, you know, these, these images and this music that was like the fa- that's been the foundation for, you know, a lot of my life, my life and passion and career. Um, so, you know, I kind of, Chris and I started talking, he hadn't fully committed to the project yet. There was, um, I, I, I started talking to revelation about it cause I was living in, I had just moved to California mm-hmm. and I knew them as well. And, and I, and I think, I think Jordan Cooper, Jordan Cooper will definitely agree that he could not offer what I needed to put this thing together. You know, I mean, you know, it, it, the, the whole pro, the whole project took four and a half years <laughs> and Jordan was like, yeah, just deliver me a, deliver me a finished book and I'll put it out. Right. Right. Which I was, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a graphic artist. Um, I'm kind of incapable of doing that. Yeah, you needed some resources, so, some support, you know, to put I, it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, 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 I'm a halfway decent writer, but I'm definitely not. You know, I, I, you know, some of the other skills to put this thing together, I didn't have. So, you know, Chris and I, Chris and I sort of left up again and, and started, you know, discussing it. And we talked about doing it like as greatest hits of the twentieth twenty issues, and we figured, oh, it would take, you know, we figured it would take about six or seven months to get done, right? Well, we were actually completely wrong. It ended up t- it ended up taking about four and a half damn years, enormous life changes between yeah. the both of us. Um, you know, it, it, it swelled from I think what we were talking about was in about 120 pages originally uh, to about 288, <laughs> and, and became became a radically different book uh, by the, by the time we finished it. Oh yeah, and, um, I mean it's a substantial piece, man. Because I saw it. You showed me a copy out in California at Ozfest. We ran into yep. each other, and it's it's like a nice sized, substantial tome of material there. It's and and then yeah, and then Chris was like, "I'm going to do this as an eleven by eleven, glossy paper hardback." Hmm, okay, and I was like, "I'm in. That's great." <laughs> um, little, little did we realize that the damn thing would weigh four and a half pounds. Oh yeah, pounds. yeah, definitely. <laughs> and um. You know, but but at the end of the day, I think we we both we both it, it became a really all-consuming project for for the both of us. Um, and I think it's a, I think it's it's a very I, I'm very I'm very proud of you know what both of us did because um, again it wasn't it was not completely my effort. You know, it, it's also Chris. You know, Chris really sweated the layout and that thing. Um, I mean, he's, he's, he, like, I can't speak highly enough about the guy. I think that like a, he is, you know, he's definitely one of, one of the best and most principled, um, and coolest record company, you know, record label owners and, 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 and vision, you know, and, and visionaries, um, you know, in, in, in punk and hardcore history. Like I would, de- I would definitely put him, you know, right next to George, Jordan Cooper, next to Corey Rusk. Yes, I would even, I would even say there's, there's some, some discordian, there's plenty of discordian ethics there as well. Uh, the guy is also an insanely hard worker, um, a fantastic, you know, graphic design, graphic designer and, and artist. He actually, he actually, um, before starting Bridge Nine, I think maybe as he was starting Bridge Nine. He was also um, the guy doing all the in-store displays at Tower Records in Boston. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I mean, the guy is just, just a really like well-rounded businessman and artist himself. Um, and yeah, just, just working, you know, wor- really working alongside of him. Um, I think we created something really special. I mean, God, he went in, he went into, there were, there were, like, there, there were, I didn't have the original art for it. So that's one, that's one thing that I kind of lost. Um, but he went back into some of the scans of, of some of the individual pages and would, would by hand restore things that were either blurred or cut off. Oh, that's pretty, pretty in, badass. Which, which is amazing. Cause you know, cause in, in, in some of the latter issues of the scene where we went from a, um, more, we went to sort of a newsprint stock. Um, you know, it, it became, the, the integrity of the printing was probably a little bit less, you know, probably didn't hold, you know, the integrity of the printing, you know, things blurred a little bit more. Um, you know, it was, it was definitely imperfect. And he, he definitely created something that was actually more legible than it probably, than it was when it came out. Um, you know, which is also part of the reason the damn thing took so, so you know, the damn thing took so long. Yeah, I imagine so, the source material. I mean, back back in you know nineteen the eighties. I mean, you you know the the budget to produce a magazine like that. I mean, you weren't using the best materials. You know what I mean? No. So. Well, no, it was it was it was you know, again it was it was it was sort of figuring out as as you went. Yeah. And I I you know you you learn things you learn things along the way. Like all of a sudden you know if you take. Uh, regular typewriter font and shrink it down. A, you can get more stuff on the page. Mm-hmm. B, it looks pretty. It looks pretty cool. So, and, and so you discover, the, you know, like how to sort of reduce things on, you know, on copy machines. Okay, and and and, and you know, doing you know doing layouts by you know, basically with rubber cement, oh, yeah. um, by by hand. No, you we've all we've all done this ourselves. Actually, um, I never have. <laughs> I never did a okay. zine, but I, I appreciate that level of work man, that goes into it. You know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of. I'm not. I'm not the most sort of like. I'm a little floppy sometimes. <laughs> um, but we were able to sort of pull it. We were able to pull it together, and you know. But it was it was definitely imperfect. Yeah. You know, but you discover things along the way, like you discover, like, oh my god, if I have to the photos. Some of these really, really pretty good photos, you know, are going to look as cool as the things you saw in Forced Exposure or My Rules or Flipside. Um, you know, it was, and you sort of figure out as you went, but like there were always, you know, little, little imperfections or, you know, like, like a few letters here or there that got cut off. Um, you know, which is kind of, the, kind of the charm of doing a fanzine or, you know, creating a flyer. Or whatever, you know, it, it was it was as raw as the inspiration itself. Um, yeah, that, that's something that always uh, just that type of thing of going. I mean, I, I read a lot of scenes when I was a kid, but also I was looking mm-hmm. at these because I knew a lot of people that did that kind of stuff, and I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could do this stuff. And I'm like, then I saw what it would take to do that, and I was like, oh man, I don't know. I'll just like I'll just stick to going to shows and you know buying t-shirts. Yeah, but it <laughs> Yeah, but 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 it's it's some. But here's the thing with you: at some point, you're like, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna step from the sidelines. I'm gonna I'm gonna go play in bands. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, you know, 
it's it's at some at some point you know you answer the call. True. True. Um, and you know, which is which is which is the which is the great thing about you know about growing up in this is, and I think I, I still I still think I still think it's the case, and I still think that there's you know there's there's plenty of room for inspiration and motivation. Um, you know, I I, I think that that yeah, but, you know, it, it it allows us basically punk and hardcore and you know, this, this incredible, like, you know, scene that we all grew up in, um, gave us all the, the license and the impetus and the inspiration to, um, go, you know, basically recreate, you know, recreate the world as we want to see it. You know, like one thing I will say, um, like in terms, in terms of inspiration, I you know you, you can't under you can't um, underestimate like how important SSD control was to you know our scene in Boston. I mean, not only were they you know a good and 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 then a great band at a certain point, um, but for for me as a kid who lived two towns away from where where where, where Alberola is from, you know, seeing seeing individuals and seeing a band that basically created their own scene, put out, you know, basically, you know, recorded, um, recorded and put out their own, you know, their own, their own record, um, put on shows, you know, and just like created something out of nothing was insanely inspiring, you know, and and I've said it before, I'll say it again. Um, you know, you, 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 as, as a kid, you put on that, like, that, that first crush of guitars, you know, on kids will have their say after you see this amazing cover of like, you know, kids, some of whom you even knew running up, you know, like, like, like challenging the man as they're running up the state house steps. Yeah. Um, and, and you, you, you hear that crush of guitars on boiling point and it's just completely the sound of liberation. It's like, Oh, okay. I, this, this world is, this world's mine for the taking. Um, and, I, and, I, and, and, you know, that's, that's, there's, that's definitely echoed in, in a lot of other bands and a lot of other records, you know, be they, you know, the first youth of today, seven inch, um, or, you know, black flag damage. Um, you know, I, it, it's sort of like, like, like there, there's those moments and there's, there's those records that just, there's those sounds and there's those just ideals that like are so key to all of us in this world and in this scene. Um, and it really, it really propelled, I think, you know, all of us to create something really special that I think still, still echoes pretty loudly today. Just a couple questions about the actual text. Is there um, any sub- supplemental material that you've uh, you've added, or is it just everything as it was written in the originals, oh. or you know? It's, why make Why make life easy for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you know, initially, initially the idea was okay. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of reprint the greatest hits of the zine, um, and maybe have some an intro or an outro. And some commentary along the way. And my initial idea was like, 
I got some quotes from some people about doing the interview or what they remembered about that experience. Mm-hmm. But what started to happen was it happened, it happened very, it happened very early on. I think it happened really with, with an interview I did with Ian Mackay um, is we started doing an interview about eighties hardcore zines and his experience with them. And I started realizing like, Oh, there's, there's a broader story. There's kind of like a broader story here. Let's, let's start pursuing, you know, let's start pursuing that in terms of some of the either, I mean, initially I was just asking people to write their remembrances of it. Right. But, you know, being, I also, also, you know, from the time I finished, um, in 19, well, probably around 86 to about 93, I also made supplemental income and ultimately like my, my, my income off of being, being a uh, freelance, um, music journalist. So I was kind of like, Oh, I'm going to go pursue that bug again. Um, and I'm going to do it in my book. And literally, literally I started getting these, you know, these really interesting interviews that really spoke about that, that, you know, what was going on both locally and just in general at that time I was, you know, I, I decided to sort of pursue like a bigger story, at least in some of the interviews I was doing with people. And really, you know, as, as kind of interviews went by and time went by, I realized that this wasn't, this wasn't just about me. This was about a bigger, a much bigger picture than just Mike Gitter with his, with his, you know, little second generation hardcore zine in the Boston area. This was, this was like, this is like, there, there's a whole kind of document of change going on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to pursue this. So, you know, in, in the end, I think, some of the strongest aspects of the book are the supplemental interviews and, you know, essays that, that got added to it. And, and there's some, there's some interviews in there, which I think are almost like very definitive interviews. I think the, the, the interview I did with Rick from Jerry's kids is probably like, the, well, it, 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 in some ways it's a very definitive interview, which explains a lot about that band. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the interviews I did with Al Barrill and Jamie Sharapa from SSD are, you know, really, really explain a lot about, you know, the band, um, its impact, its history, um, you know, some of the interband, the interband tensions and dynamics. And, and also, you know, like Al, Al, ta- Al talked about each, about the recording process of, of each record and how he views each record. You know, I thought that was really important. Probably in the last, like, few months of doing the book, I, I interviewed um, Harley Flanagan. We had a very specific interview about the Chromag's music and about their records mm-hmm. and about, you know, the record, you know, again, like the recording processes and, you know, how he sort of, how he is now reflecting on those and the impact of those. It's a very, like, enlightening discussion of, like, forget the band's beef. Who, like, who cares? The music, the impact of the music, um, they were on that line of like, they were really on that line of demarcation um, between you know, different different genres and different generations. Yeah. You know, I, I, that was like a fascinating discussion. So, you know, I, I and, and there's 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 also essays um, and some you know some perspective from. You know, a lot of friends of mine, you know, a lot of really smart and really cool and, and like 
people who, you know, are still really, you know, Dan and Mahoney wrote something great as an afterword. Uh, Tony Rutman, you know, who's really become like hardcore and punk sort of historian and, 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 you know, historian, historical curator did, you know, did something, did, wrote, an, wrote an intro for the book. And in it, I found out that, you know, he was, he was somebody who got my zine early on or, you know, early on in sort of his, his experience um, and was, was influenced by it, which is, you know, <laughs> a, a humongous compliment seeing, you know, seeing what Tony's accomplished and what he still continues to accomplish. Uh, and of course, Al Quint wrote, you know, Al Quint wrote something great. It just, it was, it was great to sort of discuss both this, you know, the, the zine itself as well as sort of, you know, the, the time and the history around it. Um, you know, and I, I, I wrote a few things and, you know, it just, it's, it's, it's a semi-coherent hodgepodge <laughs> in the end, but I think it, it hangs together really well as a book. No, that's great, man. I mean, like I said, I only got a chance to really thumb through it in uh, the parking lot there. And, uh, I definitely, I owe you, nah, you know, I owe me. you, uh, yeah, I do. I, yeah. You signed it. You you signed a release for your song. Oh right! Yeah, I owe I you some bo- I owe you some books and records. I'll have Chris send <laughs> them out to you. I forgot about yes, that. Yes, I actually I actually legally owe you, owe you that. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. So what's up with this music yeah. thing now? How is how is this yeah. all fit together now with the music? Because you know, do you get like if you order it from Bridge Nine, do you get a record or a CD or a download or what's the story with that? Look, because I've been involved involved with music really my entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've always I've always felt in general that music and and music and you know ideology was always an ongoing conversation, right? And there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of great bands and a lot of people carrying the torch. There, there's been there's been a few books, um, you know, and, and and a few sort of like discussions of like hardcore ended you know eighty three or eighty four, right? And I'm like, no, no, it, you, you can't, you can't say that, that, that any sort of, you know, music, uh, any kind of like one singular, you know, one singular expression of like emotion or rage or, or inclusion or joy has, has, a, has a, you know, a dividing line. That's not true. Um, and I also hate the idea that like, this is, a lot of the, I feel like a lot of these books tend to be the province of like forty to fifty something year old men. Yeah, yeah, sure. Or or, or, or women. Um, and and I didn't I didn't want I didn't want to be relegated to me and my cool bros. I want I, I wanted at least there to be, you know, something like a hand, just a handshake, you know, to somebody who who's young and who wants to jump on, and maybe maybe needs an in. Um, and I basically, you know, we were talking about doing like an accompanying record and, uh, Chris, you know, if, if Chris and I talked about like, Oh, maybe we'll do a compilation. I was like, yeah, that's really boring. And also licensing, licensing songs is a right. pain in the ass. Yeah. And it's so, so we kind of said like, what about just current bands recording, you know, basically bands that are either current or, you know, veteran bands that, you know, are still active now recording songs from back then. And, um, it was insanely, you know, I'm an A&R guy for, you know, 
I've, I've worked for a number of hard rock and metal labels over the years. And, you know, there's, if, if you kind of look at my discography of records, I've, I've A&R, there's kind of a through line anyway. Um, so it actually turned out to be a little, little time consuming, but like a pretty easy process, um, reaching out to just a lot of friends of mine, you know, a lot of people who are either friends of mine or bands I respected or people I had come in contact with. And some of the results were fantastic. You know, we're really like, I, I got back some amazing tracks. I, I initially approached Strife, um, who I think are a great and really important band here, here in Southern California. Um, and I think they were the first ones, I, the first ones I approached and they did, gave me back this like fantastic version of, um, who are you by Boyd, nice. which they totally strife, striped up and did their own thing. Um, you know, followed by my very good friend, Dan, Dan Lohoney, who is a fantastic new band called, uh, Shiner's Club, who most people know from No for an Answer or, or his other band, 411. And, uh, you know, in a, in a few weeks, I got back a great version of um, "Blending In" by Government Issue. Um, you know, and I reached out. You know, and, and, and as time kind of went by, um, you know, I reached out to, you know, whether whether it was it was you know you with Tombs doing you know a couple of really cool Sam Hain covers. Um, we used Kiss of you know we used Kiss of Steel on the record. Yeah. You know, also, also realizing that there's some people I knew that had like some really, some really good relevant B-sides. For instance, Voivod, a band who I think, you know, is, is important to, you know, many generations, to, you know, a couple generations now of like punk, metal, you know, whatever. Like, like they're a band that just defies, you know, categorization on all levels. Um, I was like, I know there's a live version of DeCroyson's man in the trees with Danny singing mm-hmm. that was on like this really weird limited version of their last record through century media. And, you know, Michelle from Voivod was like, yes, we want to be part of it. You know, even, even, even dealing with Fu Manchu, um, who, you know, basically are, are, are guys who were in a band called virulence who come out of that was a sort of mid eighties, Southern California, you know, hardcore scene, actually straight edge scene. um, you know, I knew they had. I knew they had this great version of. Um, well, they they had done they had done SSD covers and they've done. Um, I forget. You know, they they've done a couple other hardcore covers. I was like, hey, what else do you got? And um, I think it was Scott um, from from who was basically like, oh, we did this version of um, the Shuffle Jerks from the Shit Fan, but we've never liked the mix. Oh, I would okay. love that. Um, and you know, and eventually it got a good mix on it and it came out really well. Um, let me see, you know, and I, and I also try, I also try to like, you know, not keep it to a certain vibe or genre, but, but sort of open it up to, you know, a lot of different sounds, which is, you know, we got everything. I mean, it really ended up with everything from like, but also, you know, everything I also try to connect back to, you know, the core and the essence of the book, um, which was, you know, again, this, this music that happened, you know, in, in the eighties. You know, there were some great original tracks that came through from like uh, Shy Halud did a great Raw Power cover. Oh, sweet! Um, let me see who 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 else. Um, Jesse Leach from Killswitch, mm-hmm. who you know, who who a band I work, who is a band I worked with for a number of years. Who you know, to me are 
very much a, very much a DIY, very DIY and very much as, as, as successful as they've been, they're still, you know, kind of, kind of like self self-charged kind of, you know, hardcore kids who been been successful sort of doing things on their own terms. And Jesse is a true believer. He's a music nut. And, and he's just, you know, he, he's, he's a guy who I just have a lot of love for. And uh, he did this version of Minor Threat Salad Days, which as a dub. Oh, wow. That's which I think, it, yeah, it, it's really cool. Huh. And it's really different. And people, you know, I've heard people either go, I love this or, God damn, this sounds like Sublime. I think it's great, right? Um, you know, and then, then there were some people who had like, you know, who had, who had done tracks I thought were, were, would, would really fill out the record well. Um, Walter, Walter, uh, Schwafels from well, Quicksand and Gorilla Biscuits and, you know, a lot of other youth of today, a lot of other seminal, seminal, important, you know, New York bands on an acoustic record. He had done, um, a cover of agnostic front society suckers. That's awesome. Um, and it's just really great, like, you know, other interpretation. <laughs> That's such a weird, I, I'm trying to envision what that even would sound like but that's pretty interesting it, 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 it works um you know and, and then i had you know they also tried to reach, to reach out to some younger bands um a local band um from the la area called nomads oh i heard of them who are yeah who are you know they're they're, they're very much like you know they're very much students of the game i was like yeah, would you guys be down for doing something and mike the singer from that band comes back to me and goes do you know that flyer the flyer of like the, the infamous, you know, agnostic front crucifix show yeah. that happened at TV, the big punks and skins one. Yep. I'm like, yeah. He's like, we're going to cover the flyer. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, and they did this absolutely blistering version of a crucifix song into agnostic front the eliminator. Wow. And it, it was, cool. it was recorded in a, in a garage. And it's like, it's one of the highlights of the record. Huh. Um, yeah, and there's there's other great stuff like um, Let Live, who you know are not normally thought of, sort of in the same breath as a lot of these other bands. Um, and I, th I think Let Live were probably one of the had had a little run where I think they were they could have been one of the most important um, young, you know, bands of young bands of of recent times. Um, they did a uh, they did a cover of Black Flags Fix Me. Oh, cool. And the the vocal their singer Jason did on that is as good and as just charged as as any any of the original singers. Okay, um, that's a, so, that's yeah, a pretty it, bold it, statement, but yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it, it's a fantastic. I mean, I mean the guy the guy is like he's one of those dudes who's just like he's all performance and he's all heart, you know that dude's just all heart and soul and. um just really nailed it. And so, so I, th I think what, I think you know what came what came with with the um, with the book um, was this record that you know kind of carries kind of carries the story forward and kind of carries like a lot of the mentality. Of what, I think what we were trying to trying to, what I was trying to do with Triple X back then forward as well. And you know, and it's also again, it's it's. It's it's a point of entry, you know, if you're for somebody who maybe isn't, you know, as immersed in in in, in the history and the culture of um, 
of hardcore. And what I, what, I, what I also opted to do was make sure that in one form or another, the record was part of the book. For some of the, for some of the pre-orders, and you can now order it separately. Um, there's a, there's a vinyl version. There's a vinyl version of the record, but what I also tried to make, you know, what what we also decided to do was every book comes with a download card. Okay. Part of the experience of the triple X book. That's pretty badass. So it gives you this like soundtrack as interpreted by other people. It's uh, that's a really cool idea. I think. Yeah. I like that. To me, this didn't end this ideology, this, you know, this energy, these songs, they're still alive. And as somebody documenting, you know, documenting that, I think there's almost like this, this weird inherent responsibility to sort of go, this is still, you know, that blue adolescence record is still as great now as it was with the minute it was, it was, it was released. Um, you know, or, or this, you know, Chromax records is a skill, you know, as affecting and as charged and as just powerful now as it was when it was released. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's great music and it shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be relegated to, you know, cool guy status. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, like as time goes on, I see that the music from like the late seventies, eighties, like that original punk mm-hmm. and hardcore music as almost being like the way the rhythm and blues is viewed. You know what I mean? As time goes on, it's this part mm-hmm. of, you know, the kind of fabric of our culture really, you know, and it's something right. that's going to be referred to and built upon and evolve as time goes on as well. But those original artists are just as raw as like say Muddy Waters or, you know, Howlin' Wolf and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There, you know, some of them are as under, you know, underappreciated and underserved, you know, as some, as some of those artists were. And, you know, luckily, luckily history has been kind to a lot, you know, some of the, hard, some of the more hardworking ones. You're able to go see the descendants play in front of 3000 people. Yeah, that also dovetails into my my thought that whoever has the best songs usually wins, <laughs> um, which is why a lot of the Southern California bands have had a lot of those records have had like had a real sense of real kind of longevity. There was just some great there was some great songwriting on some of those on some of those records. You know, yeah, Lessons records, great songs, Descendants, great songs in a really, you know, to the point way, you know, a lot of the black flag catalog, great oh, yeah. songs. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think that, that kind of level of inspiration has endured. What, what to me is great is, is still, you know, talking to a lot of these guys and interacting with a lot of these guys. And even, even though life changes us and some people have gone through great things and some people have gone through, you know, great times and hard times. There's something, you know, there, there's that other thing that, that, you know, like some of those original, you know, blues artists that marks them as special, you know, and marks them as important and not, you know, n- still not giving into the mainstream. Um, you know, you talk to, you, you talk to people, somebody like, you know, Keith Morris, who is a sweet, sweet man. And who's a good dude, and he's still as heavy and 
as, you know, you know occasionally pissed off, probably a little, little bit less so, um, as he, as he was, you know, in probably in black flag and certainly in the circle jerks. I, I, t- I it was funny. I, I bumped into, um, Rick Agnew. Oh, nice. At a show recent, recently. And I hadn't, I hadn't talked to Rick in a really long time. You know, he's, he's definitely gone through some ups and downs and, but he's, you know, he, he, he's still, it, it's still, it's still care. It still carries a lot of weight for him. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's people who have been in my life constantly since then. Um, you know, just like, like seeing somebody like Vic Bondi, who's, you know, still making really like, you know, incendiary pissed off music, um, but who's also made a progression in his life through, you know, academia and through, um, work, you know, working for companies like Apple early on. You know, still still waving the torch. I think that's great. You know, even somebody like Dave Smalley, um, who's always coming back. You know, with with, with a project here or there. Um, Does Vic Bondi have a new it, a new band or some more recent thing? He Vic's done. Um, what's Vic done? So I know I know Alloy. Yeah, I know Jones Very. Of course, Articles of Faith and like I, I don't I didn't realize anything that was going on with him. Uh, past that. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he he did a band called. He's got a band ongoing called Report. He's done several bands actually. Oh. Uh, Report Suspicious Activities. Hmm. Okay. Which is which is Vic, um, Jay Robbins, playing oh, wow. bass. Okay. Uh, um, who else? Um, couple 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 of the characters. Um, you know, and they've they've put out some really like really cool records on alternative tentacles. Um, you know, another, another sort of name, name that sort of echoed throughout the history. Um, he's also played, he also had a band called dead ending. Okay. Um, which, which is certain, which involves him and, um, Joe, the bass player from rise against. I mean, he had another project recently, which was him and Colin Sears from, um, Dag Nasty. Yeah, I mean he he's continually making music. You know, I didn't, I didn't know any of that but, stuff. That's interesting. I should yeah. check it out. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's 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 totally making like, yeah, and the guy the guy is brilliant. And like you know, if if you watch um, the American Hardcore movie, you know, he's one of the stars. He's absolutely one of the stars of the show on that one. You know, just 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 as as charged, you know, and probably even more charged and more informed. You know, then he then he was back in the day. You know, I, like I I love I love the notion of you know people getting of people getting a little bit older and a, and a whole bunch angrier as we as we go. Um, I love the idea of people um, you know getting getting sort of older and, and a whole bunch angrier because well, you like you know life and experience good and bad, you know, that definitely shapes you. And it's not easy, you know, and we, cer- and we certainly live in strange, in strange times these oh, days. Clearly, so clearly we do. I mean, I mean, I mean we're, we're sort of, it feels like we're, we're, we're living inside an MDC record. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's just a, you know, it's, it's a weird time and it's, it's not the time, you know, it's a, it's certainly not the time to sort of let your guard down. Um, you know, one thing, one thing that's always bothered me, it's bothered me um, particularly since, you know, the Trump 
regime sort of arrived was where are where are the and this this is this sounds old okay but where's that next generation of people going fuck you mm, well i have where's a lot of feelings gener- about that man for sure um yeah you know i mean a lot of it now it's like you can't say anything anymore without offending somebody mm-hmm. you know and that's kind of like yeah. Whatever master plan somebody had for anesthetizing our society, I think has succeeded because now you can't you can't be offensive mm-hmm. because you're going to get branded as being like one of the many different um, undesirable factions if you express yourself in a way that doesn't fit neatly into whatever uh, liberal dogma there is. So that that fuck you aspect yep. of things has been taken away from us. And I, and I think it's, I, I think it's, it's dangerous. You know, it, it, it almost feels like the book burnings are about to start. Um, Actually, and I think it's also, it's also a distraction. You know, what's really fucked. And, and like, I just realized mm. this is, um, when we were, we were uh, finishing up the last tour. We were listening to a lot of uh serious radio, you know, Howard, mm-hmm. Howard Stern, you know, that kind of stuff. And the real fucked up thing to think about is how back in the 80s howard stern was like the sacrificial lamb you know to for free speech in a lot of ways same thing with Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. like him and opie and anthony and all these other types now all of the sort of work that they've done to ensure free speech those same people would be censored by the liberal type of, uh, you know, ideology that's going around these days. So it's like a very, very interesting circle has been closed. I feel like in free speech, you know, society and our sort of, uh, perception of what's correct and what's incorrect. You know, it's like really, really really distressing to me. There's kind of this new McCarthyism, which should not be coming from, you know, from the gentry. Yet it is. Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's and that's real. That's real scary. And like you were saying, it's a it's a distraction to something that's bigger. Yeah, yeah. And you know, again, like music. You know, music should be should be the soundtrack to um to that frustration. And I'm sure we'll hear. I'm sure we'll hear it. I'm sure it will be you know articulated. Um, and I've heard you know there's definitely like there's definitely people out there starting to make that noise. You know, I think that, I mean, obviously it's, it's on the brain cause it's up for a Grammy today, but you know, I thought the last body count record was actually very sort of outspoken. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I back ice tea body count like on every release. Yeah. I love, I love all that stuff. Yeah. No, Even, no lives I mean, matter. You know, it's great. Oh yeah. Um, like I, I think, I think that that's sort of, you know, of course it, shouldn't just be like, you know, a, a veteran like Ice-T who's, you know, who's, speak, who's speaking that truth. I mean, it's encouraging because there are bands, you know, there's a band called Fever, The Fever 333, um, which is it composed from, which is basically the singer from Let Live, uh, and members of uh, Night Verses and the Chariot, who are, you know, trying to be politically inflammatory and, and, you know, speak their minds in the same way Rage Against the Machine did, you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we have Prophets of Rage and all that. So, I mean, it's, it's percolating. I, I'm, just, I'm just waiting to see 
I, I, I guess we're, we're maybe a little, a little off from it, but the same sort of radicalism and the same sort of, you know, independent thought and thinking that um, personally and politically sort of, you know, forged, forged the underground that Triple X came out of. Yeah, it's, it's hard to, to be um, optimistic about that stuff these days, though, but, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I hope so. I hope for the sake of our country and society that that is true. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. You know, I mean, at, at, a, certain, at a certain point, somebody's got to push back. I hope. In, in a way, I feel like it might have started a little bit, you know. Um, you know, some of the uh, weird, you know, uh, sexual inappropriate behavior accusations that have been going around. I feel like I've recently read some pieces that women have actually written in response to those mm-hmm. things about how extreme the, uh, that sort of, uh, backlash is. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I'm a little hopeful about that stuff too. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, again, you know, the, the only, the only issue there is that, um, occasionally, you know, and, 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 and it's, it's good that we are, you know, that we are in aware and, you know, as a, as a society, we're aware and we're sort of willing to say like that's not acceptable. I think the danger the danger is when you know power gets placed in the hands of those people who shouldn't wield power. There's also this uh, who, piling on mentality that a lot of people have, which I think it's like, okay, well, so and so, this person was able to have a you know a catastrophe happen to them, so I want my catastrophe. Yeah. And that I think oh, is well, a very yeah. dangerous thing to happen in this society, especially with the. Uh, Agreed. You know the the access that everyone has, you know, to put their own views out there and to damage people. You know, I mean, you can damage somebody with a tweet, you know, on Twitter, and it's just like mm-hmm. you know, catastrophic results sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, in 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 Ian McKay's interview in my book, he refers to you know all all of this. You know, he was referring to mostly music, but I think I think. The, the phrase also holds, you know, the tower of, it's a tower of Babel. Yeah. Okay. And again, there's, you know, everyone has been given, everyone has been given a voice. That's amazing. And, you know, like Spider-Man says, with great power comes, comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Quoting, quoting one of my heroes for sure, man. Definitely. I've, of 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 course. Yeah, Spider-Man, The Punisher, Batman. Those are the guys. <laughs> yeah, what did you think of what did you think of The Punisher uh Netflix show? Oh, the one with John Bernthal starring uh as The Punisher. I think it's great. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I really did. Yeah, it's 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 it's, you know, it's well, it was thir- it's 13 hours of, you know, PTSD. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's clear. Yeah. You know, but it's it's it was great. It was he's probably the best Punisher, you know. Probably the best Punisher yet. I think so. Did you ever see the Punisher um, Dirty Laundry mini movie? Uh, wait, is that the one that Thomas Jane made? Um, yeah. I, um, yeah. Okay, then I did see that one. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was great. That was yeah. like that was. Kind of, I, th- I think that was kind of Thomas Jane's apology for the, uh, the for the Travolta movie. Yeah, because I think Thomas Jane would have been a great Punisher. I just think the scripts kind of sucked, actually. Yeah, you know what's really funny? Um, you know the villain in the uh, Burnthal? In the oh, Burnthal uh, Jigsaw. version. Jigsaw. Jigsaw. Yeah, the, the the guy who becomes Jigsaw. Yeah. He was he was 
played the son. That that actor played the son, Travolta's son, who gets killed. Oh, I didn't know that. I have to go in, back to him. In, in that in that movie, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Interesting. But that's yeah, the, I just found it out. the thing with the pole, the Punisher is like I'm like, how are they trying to not make this a gritty street movie? I mean, that's what the comic books are always about. And uh, yeah, Netflix finally got it right. They you know, Punisher's out on the streets. He's wearing like an army jacket and he's uh, battling, you know, regular people. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's it's like a ground based gritty crime. You know that all those elements. I always thought that like, man, the Punisher would have been great if Martin Scorsese made a Punisher film. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we get in in some way. You know. Well, it's 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 funny because like you know. There's that there's that whole history of movies that never got made, like you know James Cameron, James Cameron's Spider Man, yeah, yeah, um, Terry Gilliam's Watchmen, um, you know it's 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 kind of like they never like some of the stuff just just it takes a while to get it right. Um, Netflix has got a lot of it right, you know some of, some of the stuff like Iron Fist, eh, kind of a miss. Eh, I, I didn't mind um, Iron Fist actually. I thought it was pretty good. It was, you know, you know, you know. I don't think anybody was ever really iron, an Iron Fist fan, uh, but I also think that that ties into, Mar- into Marvel's. Um, it almost, it almost seems like they're 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 taking they're, they're not just like into B properties, you know, taking Iron Man and turning it into the foundation of a whole, you know, franchise, like a very very successful franchise. Yeah was a major was a major risk but it's funny it's like some of the stuff they're doing is almost like a drunken dare <laughs> you know, like yeah guardians sure. of the galaxy yeah and also um yeah just like you said selecting <laughs> iron fist and luke cage to make you know yeah series out of which and they, and they were definitely b and c level characters in the marvel universe you know i mean yeah i mean i mean I, i'm waiting for the uh, deadly hands of kung fu netflix special next oh uh, series. dude no. That would be <laughs> fucking cool, though, right? Yeah, I mean, Shang, dude, a Shanghai. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, or, or, um, you know, when are we start going to start getting like Bloodstone? Yeah, man. you know, or or or, or da- I mean, Dazzler, the Dazzler, yeah. Um, yep. or, or you know, I mean, Agents of Shield kind of blew my favorite Marvel character, which is Deathlock. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, they kind of they kind of blew that one a little bit, you know. The the ABC stuff hasn't been that good. No, I couldn't um, get couldn't get into it actually. The stuff that was on regular network TV. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm still you know I'm still waiting for like the return of the of the OG Nick Fury. That would be cool. That would be very cool. Howling Commandos, that, like that? <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. Sergeant or, or Fury just, and the Howling just, Commandos, yeah. Or, or just like this, like misanthropic, like just real sort of right-wing, you know, asshole. Yeah. I always the thought Nick, the, I always thought that um that a good Nick Fury would have been Clint Eastwood, you know, back when he was younger yeah. obviously, but he he would have been a great Nick Fury. I, I think there's I think there's still room for like, you know, Nick Fury A and Nick Fury B. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, but there's you know, there's 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 definitely Guardians. I mean, you know, you go back to Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like it's like that's such a that's like a masterstroke. Um, 
you know, of, of, of a, of, of really a, you know, great writing, great filmmaking, but also just, just like a complete, like, like we can do anything. Yeah. Kind, I mean, of, kind of, it's a, it's a real pivot moment for, for, for Marvel. Yeah, totally. I mean, the, uh, you know, star Lord, the original Marvel Comics version of Star Lord that was in the black and white like Marvel preview and, and sure. the backup feature and rampaging Hulk like that character the kind of yep. that's like my my version of Star Lord like he's kind of you know brooding solitary guy traveling yeah. through space like that was cool you know I mean that would that that version of Star Lord I'd really like to see them make that into a series or something like that but I don't I, think that I, would happen. I'm okay. No, I'm I'm okay with you know the Chris Pine sort of you know ver- like Han Solo version of Star Lord. Yeah, that's um, fine. You know it, it's, but you know they, they've I mean they've done the whole I mean they've done it really 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 well. Even even like and I, I love how they course correct like this new um the last Thor movie. Oh right, yeah. They took they took the boring advent- the boring Avenger. And made one of the best Marvel movies with the boring Avenger. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. You know, so it's it, it, it's like it, that whole. I mean, that whole that whole franchise and, and and how that like how Marvel as a company sort of how that worked. You know, how that basically saved Marvel as a company from bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's really the truth of the matter, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if if you look at like where they where they were, you know, I, I, when where they were when they made Iron Man, I mean, that that was like the company rending um, crapshoot. Yeah, you know, because at that point they were they were like you know they were like auctioning off properties like they were um, were selling the fixtures at the store. <laughs> yeah. Um, Avi Arad, you know, taking the company back at that point and really changing the nature of the company is 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 pretty pretty fascinating itself. It's funny. There's a book. I don't know if you if you should pick it up. You know, if you if you have time on tour to read, called the the Unknown History of Marvel Comics. Okay. And it, it really de- it really details like the whole you know the whole thing from like timely comics and you know. The early, you know, like the early days of, well, basically, you know, the late 30s and early 40s mm-hmm. to to the 2000s. Um, and it's a great story. And it's, it's not, you know, it's not always a harmonious story. I have a feeling that Jack Kirby, and, you know, Jack Kirby did not like Stan Lee. Yeah, that's what um, I've, I've gathered that as well, just over years of reading about the two, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's a really, that's a really interesting dynamic in itself. It's yes. I mean, it's it, there's there's so many like you know, and some of the some of the guys in the seventy you know some of the guys in the seventies who got paid very little, guys like you know probably Jim Starlin, guys like Starlin, Don McGregor, like those cats like you know probably not making a lot but turning over like a lot of work. So it's you know Marvel itself is a fascinating is a fascinating company. Yeah, I always thought they had the superior characters, in my opinion. I mean, I liked uh, Batman, oh, yeah. for sure, for DC, but Marvel, the Marvel character is always my favorite. Like Stan Lee, who I think is, you know, a, a great politician, as, as much as he's a great, is a, is a great creative. 
you know, just really well written, well developed characters, and and also made made that move to sort of humanize humanize superheroes. And you know, I think that's where you you know that's where you get you know just dysfunctional you know families like the fantastic dysfunctional every family is like the fantastic four right or you know like which spider-man being a complete ode to adolescence or you know um the hulk being every kid or you know semi semi kid or semi-adult you know feelings of alienation and just sort of misanthropy so it's it's yeah, it, it, it's it's a really it's a great legacy, and you know the thing I think is the thing I think is pretty fucking great is like they are you know they really make an effort to honor their own legacy, and Disney has you know Disney has been probably been a great partner for them as well. I was a little rep, you know sort of apprehensive about that news when I heard that they were purchased by Disney, but I think they've done a really great job so far. Yeah, but here's here's the thing. Here's the thing about Disney. Is Disney doesn't do subpar work. Yeah. Like, like even in their own properties, there's always been an insistence on quality, you know. And, and you see it in Disney properties. You also see it in, um, you know, you see it in the Star Wars stuff too. Like, like, like they made a, they really made a point to like when they when they, when they wrested that from um, George Lucas's hand. Like, they made a point to do really great world building. And, you know, like they're making quality, you know, whether you like this aspect of The Last Jedi or don't like this, you know, didn't like the end of Rogue One or whatever. They're still like, well, hey, they're way better than the prequels. Oh, God, um, yes, definitely. There's some there's some genuine artistry going into those movies, be they, be they you know, J.J. Abrams being a great storyteller or um, due to The Last Jedi, like, like visually there's a couple of moments in that movie where you just go, that's beautiful. And that's completely... You know that that's very like, you know, Japanese anime, you know, influenced. But like, holy shit, that plays out beautifully. Yeah, I mean, it was just what I think. I think those properties needed was this infusion of yeah. blood. And um, I'm a fan. I mean, I'm definitely a fan of the new stuff that's going on with Star Wars. Well, it's, it's funny. It's funny, you know. It's, it's, but like now we're going on this like comic book trail. Um, comics had a lot to do with how I discovered rock and roll. Hmm, interesting. Like they kind of went hand. They kind of went hand in hand. Um, discovering like, I mean, I mean, basically one of the places I got comics from originally was there was a comic rack at the local record store. So, you know, and this was this was the mid to late seventies. So, you know, while I was picking up giant sized Spider Man, um, I'd see the cover of like Meatloaf Spat Out of Hell by Richard Corbin. Oh, yeah. go, oh. Oh right, there's, uh, there's there's a parallel there, or you know, hearing hearing um like Zeppelin Zeppelin doing you know the Battle of Evermore, mm-hmm. right, and, and 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 referencing fucking Lord of the Rings, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, makes you just go, okay, I I I'm in, or you know, even seeing like something, I got turned on to through a kid who lived like a couple doors away, um, the Who's Tommy early on because like visual, visually it was so, it was so the, the movie version of it was so arresting. Um, you know, it was one of the first, that was one of the first records I ever, ever, ever bought. 
um, you know, probably probably based on some of the images and images in that film, which were also all like you know, fantasy and, and just seven like just seventies pop culture. I didn't, you know, as a, as a kid, I didn't realize that like Oliver Reed wasn't in the Who, <laughs> <laughs> and Margaret wasn't in the Who, thankfully. Um, but yeah, I mean, like comic, you know, and, and then then Heavy Metal Magazine was such a huge turning point for all of this. Yeah, definitely, man, for sure. Because one, one, it was called Heavy Metal Magazine. Yeah, yeah. Two, they started doing articles on people like, you know, Devo and Nash the Slash and the Residents and stuff like stuff like that. You had no context or no like understanding of it as a kid, mm-hmm. and it makes you go like, "Oh, I'm going to check out that because that Devo, you know, I'm going to check out this Devo thing, you know." So because I'm reading about it in Heavy Metal Magazine. You know, which, which, again, like a great, you know, a great source of like art, you know, early art and inspiration, and like, you know, so it's it's funny for me how it's sort of all gone hand in hand, at least at least early on, and you know, I'm still I'm not a sports fan. Um, me neither, actually. <laughs> yeah, but but in terms of like comics and movies and all that stuff, like it's still you know. In, enormously exciting! I could probably have an hour. I can have an hour conversation about the new Blade Runner movie. Oh man, I, I just saw didn't. that recently. Great, great movie. Great. <sighs> oh, so good. Better than the. I think first of all, I think it's better than the original. And you know, the original is my favorite movie ever. Yeah. Um, I think I think fuck I think Ryan Gosling kills it. Yes, he does actually. Uh, I think the script is amazing. I think I think probably you know. Jared Leto does his Jared Leto thing. I think that role was originally written for, for David Bowie, from what I understand. I can see that, yeah. Uh, yeah, but um, it's just great. It's a great movie on so, many, on so many levels, like the whole notion of like replicants as sort of a marginalized minority. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, you know, I think that, that, that is great science fiction in a way. It sort of, I, I think it really echoes, to, it really speaks to like, you know, other marginalized communities, um, be they, be they, you know, gender or race. Um, you know, there's, there's, some, I don't know, there's, there's, that movie's great. There's some incredible moments in it. Uh, I can't wait to see, um, what, uh, Denny Villeneuve, I think is how you pronounce his name, does with Dune. Oh yeah. Finally another, uh, yeah. some sort of like, closure on that too you know what i mean having like a, a really good dune adaptation out there you know uh jordorowski I mean, I mean, originally he was um alessandro jordorowski oh, yeah. was originally slated to do dune yeah well the thing that's interesting the thing that's interesting about that is uh, well first first off his his version of dune is probably the most like ambitious fucked up and ungainly movie ever yeah um and and you know when he said when he he had the whole notion of like the plant like the planet being the messiah. Yeah, yeah. I saw this documentary about it. It was really yeah. awesome. Yeah. But the thing that's really interesting about about his production of Dune was he assembled probably one of the most groundbreaking like visual teams and design teams mm-hmm. ever with um with with Giger and Chris yeah. Foss. You know, and, and, and people like Dan O'Bannon being involved, mm-hmm. who would go and, you know, 
work with Ridley Scott and, you know, develop like Alien and Blade Runner. But yeah, the Joe Welsky version of Dune would have been like, it, it, I mean, El, like El Topo is, 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 El Topo is a strange movie in itself. <laughs> I think this yeah. would even be a weird, this would just be like the weirdest movie ever. Yeah, or like, the, like I, I would visualize it more like Holy Mountain or something like that. Some sort of just like yeah. bizarre, nonlinear kind of like narrative like that. Yeah, with Orson Welles <laughs> yeah. and Mick Jagger. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's it. Yeah. Crazy. Um, yeah, it would have, it, the whole thing just would have been incredible. But I, I, I think Villain Yu will come, will come with like a Dune that's actually, he does, I mean, really Scott was supposed to do a version of Dune as well. And I guess the script kind of read like this weird incest movie. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, you know, really Scott's a very strange filmmaker and gets stranger as the years go by. Yeah. You know, but, um, but yeah, I think, so I, I but yeah, I, I have high hopes for, for, you know, whatever version of Dune sort of we get in a couple of years. Just real quick about Blade Runner, man, that the, the yeah. soundtrack and score for that is pretty amazing too. And, uh, yeah, it was one of my favorite. It was one of my favorite records of last year. Yeah, man, it's so good. And it just the whole movie has this really brooding sort of atmospheric loneliness to it too. I mean, each one of the characters just seems completely alone in the storyline. And um, well, that and that's that's the beauty of that movie. Yeah. Um, is 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 it's really about that sense? It's it's about that sense of isolation. But the the world build, I tell you, the world building in it, I think, is incredible. Yeah. God, and the script is so good, and the acting is so good. And you know that that moment that that moment where you know Robin Robin Wright basically tells Kay, um, you know, you've been getting along well without a soul, and and looking at his reaction is just like one of the greatest, like probably one of the greatest moments in in. Forget sci like sci-fi movies, but like just in, in, in movies in general, like in the past, you know, I've seen in the past few years. I think it's one of the I think it's one of the probably the five best science fiction movies ever. Yeah, I'll agree with that for sure. And because at its essence, it's a great movie too. I mean, it's, you know, the, yeah, for all the reasons we just mentioned, for sure. Absolutely, like absolutely. So, yeah, it's, you know. God, and to think, and to think, I actually even have a job that does involve with music as well. <laughs> pretty bad, pretty badass, man. Yeah. I know. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find, I'm gonna find out if, 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 if that body count women record uh, wins a Grammy award in the next hour. They're making better records now than like they made for years. Will uh, isn't Will Putney involved in those records? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Will Will's a top notch uh, producer, man, for sure. Will's Will's great. Like Will's Will's one of those people um, who I, like I've loved working with. We had we had so much fun like working on that record, you know. And, and but then again, you also also working with Body Count. You have an artist who is down who's down to like listen. You know, what I mean, who's who's I, we had this great we had this like great moment while we were kind of like going through some of the some of the early mixes and early um, you know rough ideas. There was, there was this evening in the studio where, where, you know, Will and Ice and myself were just kind of throwing a bunch of ideas around. Mm -hmm. And one of those, one of those ideas actually kind of evolved into, um, 
the song Black Hoodie, which is you know, the Grammy-nominated song Black Hoodie. You got to love this, the, the titles. The titles of the songs, too, man. The oh, way, yeah. Way of the Ski Mask, Black Hoodie. It just it speaks to me, man. You know? mm-hmm. And, and just, just, yeah, and, well, and just, just the, the, the mixture of, like, really dark humor and real seriousness and, you know, just having a freaking sense of, you know, having a sense of a really dark and on-point sense of humor. But it was, I had this great moment with Ice at the end of that night. Because I said to him, hey, man, thank you. You know, thank you for listening and, and being open and, you know, hearing me through on a couple of things. He, he looks at me, he goes, hey, my first record. <laughs> and I go, and I, and I just think, this is why this guy has had this incredible career. This is, this is why this guy, this is why people want to work with this guy. Even, even like his hip hop stuff, I've been a big fan of since like the late eighties. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a, I just think ice is a cool guy too. You know, he's got like a lot of cool yeah. interviews. He comes across great in interviews, all that stuff, you know? Yeah. He, he's, he comes across great in interviews and he's just, he's such a, you know, Hey, he's such a great guy. Um, people love to work with him. And he's he's one of the best communicators I've ever you know I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Like I've been, and it's funny like, like, like in, you know recently like like sort of back to back I did um, you know records with with him and with Chris Jericho, mm-hmm. two two really like you know two really sort of like beloved and really good dudes, um, and you just realize like these people just know how to communicate. Like, yeah, that's a skill. In, you know, that's a skill that goes a long yeah. way, man, for sure. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, they're definitely, you know, those dudes are the, those dudes are the real deal. Well, let's tie it back to uh, to this book again, and um, I'll let you okay. get on with the rest of your Sunday. And um, so, is the book out, or is it still in pre order? Uh, you know, oh no, the, the, I'm sorry, no, the book came out in November. It came out oh, November geez. 10th. Wow, time flies, yeah. man. I saw you time, in November, and it was still a pre-order, I think. Wasn't it at that point? Yeah, yeah. Um, what happened to the last two months? No, I, no I, I, saw you, I saw you right as it was coming out. Okay. Yeah. Um, Damn. I blinked. Yeah, I, mean, I blinked. Basic, two months gone by. Crazy. Yeah, basically. Um, no, the record came... I'm sorry, the book <laughs> came out November 10th. Okay. Um. And we, we've had so far. It's it's been very well accepted. We had great. We've had, we've had sold sold a few books. Um, you know, I think that we we, we what was very interesting is one one of the best um, one of the best retailers um, for it was um, Urban Outfitters. Really. Interesting. Which, 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 which says a lot about how they're kind of how they've kind of permeated, the, you know, the culture. Okay. Um, but you know, for for me, it's been it's been a great experience. You know, we've done some book release parties. The Boston the Boston ones were super fun, and you know, the, the, we did this one at um, we did this one at um, the Bridge Nine office, and you know, Al from SSD. My parents and Al from SSC coming to my book, coming to my, like my book release was like this, this really amazing, weird, weird dream, you know, kind of super fun, yeah. super fun evening. I can see that. Um, we did a New York, you know, we did a New York one that involved um, Jerry's kids in the FU's playing. Oh, nice. 
Um, it also involved a panel with you know Tom Lyle from Government Issue, uh, Dwayne Lucia who started the Gallery East, Chris Chris Wren, um, you know a couple of guys, uh, Steve and John from the FUs, and Drew Drew Stone who's another who's been like a really great like like arch, another fellow kind of archivist of our culture. Okay. Um, you know he moderated it. That, that's that was kind of a blast. Um, and you know the the you know just just speaking personally, like like I think that the the experience of doing the book um, and everything that's sort of come along with it, you know, as as cliche as it sounds, it's, it's like coming home. And that's a great jump, you know. And that is a that's a great jumping off point, you know. The 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 the, the sort of rawness and the earnesty and the 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 inspiration and the effort that that goes into you know putting out you know a zine or or being in a band you know um or every every lesson we learned you know when we had to do it ourselves that's pretty like you know that that still carries a ton of resonance and a ton of a ton of weight where can people order this? Like, um, what, what are some of the outlets? Amazon, like the Bridge Nine website, you know, that kind of stuff. Amazon, Bridge Nine, pretty much most of the usual outlets. Okay. Um, it's distributed by AK Press, who are doing a very good job getting it into, um, you know, the, the, sort of the right stores. Actually, actually, AK Press and Revelation are both distributing it. Nice. And, and they're both getting it into the, you know, into the right places and, you know, as, as time goes, as, 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 you know, the weeks go by, I'm seeing it in more stores, which is pretty gratifying. It's definitely been a great experience. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's great, you know, being able to talk my head off and, you know, reconnect with, reconnect with, or, or connect or reconnect with people who, you know, whether, whether they be sort of, friends or acquaintances that go back, you know, 30 years or people I'm just meeting now, it's amazing to see the conversation, you know, the conversation that started when I was in high school has, is, is not only still going on, but it's also evolved. Awesome. Well, thanks uh, a lot, Mike. I appreciate it. Um, you know, Mike, thank you. Taking time out of your schedule I, here. And it's meaningful. But yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll bug Chris to get you, get you those books as well. Yeah, let me. Um, I'll, I'll offline. I'll update you with uh, an address to send it to too. So that'd be please, great. all right, man. Please. When, when are you back? When are you back out this one? Unknown, probably summertime. Like we have, uh, like a thing with bloodbath coming up in in May, and that's just okay. a few dates. Uh, there's been some stuff that Mark's been telling me about that uh, we're waiting to hear about for sure. But I mean, I'm sure. Like last year, we were, we were on tour from a lot of the year. So, I mean, maybe things are yeah. getting busy for us, uh, probably around, you know, late spring, summertime. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. All right. Thanks, Mike. Have a good night. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.